we've left the employee behind. We've absolutely left them behind. We've not made the same level of focus and investments and put the same level of rigor into creating a good experience for our employees to help them be happy, similar to the way we've made our customers happy. And that is that dilemma of hyper-focus on customer, customer centricity, customer obsessed, yet at the expense of the employees. Helping you create loyal customers and loyal employees all through the power of simplicity. This is the Simple Brand Podcast, now heard around the world, including Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm your host, Matt Lyles, and this week I'm talking with Tiffany Bova. Tiffany's an international keynote speaker and the former global customer growth and innovation evangelist at Salesforce. She's been named twice as one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50. She's a regular contributor to Forbes, Entrepreneur, Fast Company, and Harvard Business Review. She's the host of the What's Next with Tiffany Bova podcast. And Tiffany's a Wall Street Journal bestselling author of two books, including her latest, The Experience Mindset, Changing the Way You Think About Growth. Tiffany and I discuss the lessons from the experience mindset, and they're all around the impact your brand has when you place an equal focus on both customer experience and employee experience. Over the past couple of decades, we've seen the rise of customer experience and brands putting effort into putting customers first. And that rise in customer experience seems to have actually grown exponentially since the pandemic. And it makes total sense. I mean, if you can't deliver the experience your customers need, you won't have them around for too long. But we're starting to realize that too many brands haven't put the same investment and the same effort into their employee experience as they have in their customer experience. And that's pointing to a number of effects. The great resignation, quiet quitting, and a documented decline in customer service. Listen, of course, the customer experience is important, but you need to recognize that the employee experience is just as important. It's a both and situation, not an either or. Because when you take the time, the resources, and the intention to balance the needs of your customers and your employees together, then you're actually positioned to deliver an even better customer experience. And Tiffany's research shows that you'll be much better off financially than the brands that focus solely on the customer experience while ignoring their employee experience. So here it is. Here's my interview with Tiffany Bova. Hi, Tiffany. Welcome to the show. Yep. Thanks for having me, Matt. I'm thrilled to be here. Congratulations on the experience mindset. Well, thank you. It is my second child, the book. Yeah. So the first child was the first book. This is the second child. You feel like you put them in the world and you hope they do well, right? That's that's sort of the goal. That's it. Now, when, when, you, when you finished your first book, did you think, you know what, I'm so ready for the second one? Absolutely not. I actually told my agent and my publisher, I won't be back. Like it yeah, was just, that's it. I had no, yeah, I was out. It, it's uh, my mode of communication and learning is, visual listen. That's how I absorb and learn. Right. My medium of learning is not writing and reading. While I write and read for a living, it's not my 
you know, if someone said to me, you can have a conversation with me or you can read what I'm going to say to you, I would always pick the audible version of it because I retain it better. Um, I don't get, get distracted. So it, it's a lot of work for me to transfer my mode, preferred mode of speaking communication into written communication because it's just not the same. But I was so inspired, I guess that's, that's what you say that I sat down one day and I went, I think I'm going to do this again. So I reached out to the team and they said, we knew you'd be back. And I'm like, I didn't know I'd be back. Right. And then this time I literally said, unless it's a book about gardening or something, I don't think I'm going to, I don't think I'm going to do another one. So that's it. You're truly done this time. I think so. I I get to say, I think I'm 99% sure that is a true statement. How about that? There you go. Unless new inspiration. Unless I'm inspired again. Yeah, Yeah. who knows? Well, before we even get into the lessons and the meat of the book, I want to talk about the book's dedication. Before the book kicks off in your dedication, you focus on your mother and the subject of happiness. Talk to me about that and talk to me about happiness. Well, uh, my, it was just my mom and I, I was an only child. My mom was an only child. So it was a pretty narrow group, if you will, between the two of us. But she was a teacher my whole childhood, worked a number of teaching jobs to give me such a, an amazing childhood and education on my own. And unfortunately, she got sick right as I was finishing the book and passed away literally the day I turned in my final manuscript. Um, but in our last conversation, I said, oh, mom, you know, I'm going to turn in the book and, I, and I'd like you to give me the dedication. Would you, would you write the dedication for me? And she couldn't write at the time. So I recorded the video of her saying this sort of, it was about a, maybe a two minute thing that she said. Uh, and I clipped, um, the first part of it and, and that became the dedication of the book. And she said, you know, of the million things I've told you. Um, the one thing I'd want you to remember is to always be happy. And so that was a perfect dedication for the book. And really the last thing that she said to me, and she passed the day I turned in the final manuscript. So this book is absolutely dedicated to her. That That, that is lovely to me. And it's pretty amazing how we spend the majority of our life with someone like our parents. But then sometimes like some of the most key lessons come down to a couple minute conversation. I would definitely say that last six weeks was probably since I was a kid, you know, I'm in my late 50s. But since I was a kid, the most kind of heartfelt conversations you have with your parents, unfortunately, tend to be when you're dealing with really challenging times. And so, you know, I think it was a perfect, it was a perfect send off. Now, if I could have her back and not get that, I would do it as well. But at the end of the day, she at least knew I wrote a second book and, and knew that I was doing well. And she wanted to just make sure that I, I remained happy throughout it all. There you go. I'm sure that she is so proud of, of your accomplishments and your books. And the fact that you were able to share your second book is pretty amazing. But when we think of happiness, that's actually a lesson or a theme that permeates throughout the whole book. We talk about happy customers. We want to make our customers happy, but it's that happy employees make happy customers. So as it relates to happy employees, how do you define happy? Such a great question, Matt, because when I first started sharing the research, I I said, 
it, it's it's one of the anchor quotes in the book that the fastest way to get customers to love your brand is to get employees to love their job. And when I say that, I can sometimes see executives sort of, you know, back up and be like, love, here we go. Like, how do you measure love? What does that mean? I'm at work. This is not my spouse or my kid or my best friend. I'm at work, right? Like, right. why are we talking about love work at work? work. Um, and, and I think it goes to the heart of what you just said. We spend 90,000 hours in this thing called a job. It's a third of our life. I would hope that it brings us some joy, that you're not miserable a third of your life, that by the way, in many situations, you have an option to do something else. Not every situation. Some people are having, unfortunately, to work multiple jobs in order to put food on the table and, and educate their kids and put clothes on their back, et cetera. And those hard workers, right? I don't negate the importance of their happiness as well. But I, I want to make sure that if if there is a way in which we have a choice and for another day, right? Everybody could argue, everybody always has a choice. Right. Let's make the assumption you have the choice. Do you want to choose to work somewhere where you're just not happy every day? That you dread going to work? That you spend a third of your life there? That it absorbs eight hours a day? That you miss your kids this and your family that, and you can't do this because of work? You can't vacation, but you don't get all these things and you just sort of grind through. You know, you just wake up and do it again and do it again. I can use myself as an example. Like I feel super blessed that I get to do what I get to do. I love it. I'm happy doing it. I get joy out of doing it. I'm inspired by doing it. Many people say to me, like, how do I get to do what you do? Like, cause it just looks like <laughs> you have so much fun and you love it because I do. And I am right. It's both of those things. Yeah. Uh, but I, I had to uncover personally what really made me happy at work. And how could I find the right role or job that the majority of the time, right? Because you're not going to be 100% happy all the time, that the right. majority of the time that you find some of this joy and happiness. To your point, I never thought that when I started down this making a comment of, could I prove happy employee leads to happy customer, get those two things right, you get greater growth rates as a business. Because it's painfully obvious, it's very intuitive, but if it's so obvious, then why isn't everyone doing it, right? right. And so it was kind of this, oops, I stumbled upon something that I actually was interested in that I didn't know I was interested in, back to why I decided to write a second book. But you're right. It's happiness, what drives it? Everybody's different. Happiness, what inspires it? Everybody's different. But at its core, one could argue that I care about working here. I want you to care about me. I care about doing my best work. I want you to care about me. I care about doing what's best for the customer. I want you to care about doing what's best for me as an employee. I don't want you to only care about the bottom line. I'm a human. We are on this together. Businesses are a collection of people. They are not a spreadsheet or a dashboard or a P&L. So, I think it's very important in every industry, for every size organization, that leaders and individuals find a balance between those two things. You touched on something that I don't think enough people understand what we've done over the past, what, decade plus, maybe, maybe more. There's been this big focus on CX, on the customer experience. And a big part of CX is what can we do to reduce the effort for our customers. 
in doing that, I think we've created what you refer to as the CX dilemma. Talk to me about that. Look, I, I've been on this accidentally, <laughs> this customer experience journey for some time. I was a practicing sales, marketing, and customer service leader in technology for about 15 years for startups all the way to Fortune 500. My last sort of operating role was running a division of a Fortune 500 company. And then I spent a decade at the Gartner Group as a research fellow covering sales transformation and go-to-market models. And so I was always in the thick of growth. And it was back in 2008, I was part of the team at Gartner that made the prediction that the chief marketing officer would spend more on technology than the chief information officer. And when I made that, everyone thought we were crazy. Yeah. yeah. And, and people initially sort of went, oh, that's search engine optimization or digital advertising. But we were really talking about technology. Right. User interface design, app development. They were buying hardware and software and services, and they were creating their own tech stacks. They were hiring reference architects. I mean, they were really making investments in IT. But it wasn't about IT. It was really about how do we, to your point, Matt, reduce the effort for the customer to increase their experience online and offline? How do we deconstruct the customer journey so that we can remove friction and make it seamless and all the terminology that gets you know, thrown out there in articles and books and podcasts yeah. from many people we all know, including <laughs> myself. We use those terms. Sounds good. Looks good on a PowerPoint. Really difficult to execute and really difficult to execute at scale and yeah. really difficult to execute at scale in hyper growth mode and really difficult to fix when things go wrong because by the time you realize things are going wrong, you've made decisions two or three quarters ago that are the reason you're in this situation. It's hard to course correct unless you're large enough and you can get your hands on capital and assets and things like that. But if you're a smaller, medium business, it could be catastrophic for you. Oh, yeah. But when we made that prediction, we really fought and advocated for the CMO to have a seat at the table. We advocated for companies to move from being product led to being customer led. And those things happened from 2008 to let's call it, you know, 2020, sort of right before the pandemic. We've spent billions, we, the royal we, have spent billions of dollars on digital transformation, all in search of making it easier for our customers to order, to get products, right? Same day delivery, two hour delivery, instantaneous gratification, no shipping charges, like subscription models, all the things we've done in the name of the customer. And unfortunately, through the research, what it proved was we've left the employee behind. We've absolutely left them behind. We've not made the same level of focus and investments and put the same level of rigor into creating a good experience for our employees to help them be happy, similar to the way we've made our customers happy. And that is that dilemma of hyper-focus on customer, customer-centricity, customer-obsessed, yet at the expense of the employees. So when I was reading that, that light bulb went off in my head. It was like, well, with all the effort to reduce effort, we didn't really end up reducing effort. We just shifted it somewhere else. Right. I mean, look, some of that is just the pure level of investment that needed to be made for technology. If we go back to 2008, not everything was as a service, not everything was cloud-based, not all small, medium businesses were online. And even at sort of six months into the pandemic, Salesforce had done some research, and I'm going to get this wrong because it's from memory. It's not, I don't think I put it in the book. 
was like 50 something percent of small businesses got online for the very first time during the pandemic, early in the pandemic. Like really in 2020 and 2021, they were just getting online. And we've been on this worldwide web journey since the end of the 90s. So for 20 years, they're like, nah, I'll do it later, or I don't need to do it, or my customers want to come in, or they want to see me, or it's a restaurant. Why do I need to be online? Oh, well, I don't know, because they need to order. It needs to be delivered. They need to see your menu. Well, the pandemic sort of forced the hand and everyone very quickly had to get online. But cloud has also democratized access to technology that might have been only reserved for medium and enterprises in the past. So to me, there's no excuse to say we can't just do things for customers and not think about employees. Um, But those that did make those transformations for customer may have done it in an interface, right? It's one click to order, but then an employee gets an email and then the employee has to enter it into the system, enter the shipping information, enter the billing information. Like they're having to do all this. It's not automated. And in 2023, that's a shame because that's so easy to do, not just from someone like Salesforce. There's lots of free ways that you could do it as well. So ultimately, this is that investment and don't just push the steps that you used to ask customers to do to your employees because that increases what they the effort they have to put in and then decreases their satisfaction and engagement. Yeah. I've got to think that it's sometimes depending on the company, you know, behind the scenes when you have that much effort, that much work, that many steps that has to go on behind the scenes, it seems kind of like a house of cards that could very well fall if you don't do the right things inside. Well, the the house of cards that fell was the great resignation. And yeah. the house of cards that's still on the ground is the uh, quiet quitting. So I would say that out of all the horrific things that happened out of the pandemic, for me, from a business perspective, what I think was a positive out of it was it shined a light and cracked open the lack of investments we've made for employees and forced the hand of employers to be better. And the balance of power, if you will, and I put power in air quotes between the employer and the employee shifted a little bit. Now, what I'm worried about now, you could argue we're almost in 2024, which is just shocking, is that are people snapping back to those bad behaviors? Are leaders snapping back to the way that it used to be? Like, that's okay. We can just find other people because, you know, there's a lot of people looking for work because there's been a lot of layoffs. So don't worry about it. Or we're now going to deploy tracking software on keyboards so we can see what our employees are doing if they're still going to work from home. You Making decisions like they would have made pre-pandemic after, and I don't mean to, to, to convey that it needs to stay the way that it was. I just don't want it to go all the way back to the way that it was pre-pandemic. I think we should take the lessons learned and then apply them and make it better and make those changes because people have spoken through those two activities, right? The resignation and the quiet quitting have said, I just won't put up with it anymore if you don't get this right for me because I want more. I want more from something that I do and spend 90,000 hours of my life and a third of my life doing like I'm either going to work for myself or I'm going to go work somewhere else, but I'm not doing this anymore. And and people have realized that there are companies that are doing this. There are companies that are placing the same focus on employees that they place on customers so that they know 
those opportunities are out there and that they can go and work at those places. Absolutely. Once a company, once leadership says, okay, we get it, we're doing this. What happens when companies do place that same high priority on both uh, CX that they do with EX and vice versa? What I want to make sure that I'm clear on, and there's a reason I called the book The Experience Mindset, was when I first started sharing the research globally, really across all kinds of roles and all size organizations, I did probably close to 100 executive conversations myself, not that, not as part of the research. Like this was just, a, I'm actually sharing the research and I got right. feedback. And that really led me to, where well, there's something there, there, maybe I should write a book. Like part of that was this whole process of, uh, it was worthwhile. But the first thing I heard was, if it's so obvious, why isn't everyone doing it? The second one I heard was, who owns it? Right. And so I'm going to hone on that one for a second. Who owns it is a very expert mindset, meaning who owns it means I need to put an executive in charge. It's another siloed group, right? I'm going to put KPIs against it. I can measure it. I can manage it. I have blah, 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 right? That's why I called it the experience mindset, because it isn't about what's first or second. It's an and play that I want organizations, if they ever make a decision for the customer, we are going to do video calling with our clients because we've surveyed them and that's what they want to do. And so our call center is now going to have to do video calls. Let's say we're a bank or we're an insurance company or whatever it might be, right? They're going to do video calls. And so I am, you know, I, aren't I brilliant? I'm that executive that did a survey to customer. They said they wanted video and that's what we're going to mm. do. I am a champion, right? We are customer centric. We listen to our customers. We show up, we do what they want. Yes, check, check, check. That's all very good. And then it, they say, we're going to do it in 30 days. And they flip the switch. Oh, but wait, hold on a second. Half of our call center agents now work from home full time. Do they have enough high-speed internet to actually do video calls? Right. Have they been trained? Have we changed the metric for the call center? Because the call center voice might be shorter calls than call center video which maybe people enjoy the video call more. So let's say the voice call was the a- an average of five minutes. I'm, I'm making these numbers up, but you get the point, right. right? But the average video call is nine minutes, but you don't even know what that is. So now all of a sudden, let's make it 10 minutes. So the average video call is 10 minutes. The average phone call is five minutes. But your metric is at five minutes, somebody is going to take 11 calls or so an hour. So the metric is in an eight-hour day, you're going to take 80 calls, whatever it is. And if you take 50 calls, you get dinged, right? And if you stay too long on the phone, you stay seven minutes on the phone, you get dinged. But now all of a sudden, it's an average of 10 minutes. So that metric doesn't work, right? The metric should be changed, but they didn't. They flipped the switch. I checked the box. I'm a champion. And so the ask from the book is when you make a decision for customer, understand that unintended or intended consequence for the employee, like what we just said. Do they have high-speed internet? Is the metric have to change? Do they have to be retrained? Do we now have to have rules? Do they need to use a fake background? And here's the standard. Do they need to wear a certain color shirt? Do they, you know, what are we going to do? Like, let's just say it's Best Buy, and this is an example. This is an example. This is not what they do. I Actually, I don't know if this is what they do. But, you know, when you go and you see Geek Squad, right, they're all dressed the same. So would they want to do the same thing in the call center where everyone was wearing a white shirt? 
well, do they have to get them white shirts? I mean, you get where I'm going, right? You could take this a hundred ways. But if you're only thinking about checking the box for the customer, that experience for the employee is the metric's not right. I've gotten in trouble. Like my room is sloppy. I wasn't given a background. I wasn't trained. All of these things. And so it's a catastrophic failure. So then the executives go, wait a second. We heard that our customers wanted video calling. What went wrong? And they look at the person who made that decision. And the answer is the employees were completely set up for failure. And nobody stopped to have that experience mind to set to say, if we do something for one, what's the implication to the other? And that's why it's not about who owns it. It's not about a new group. It's not about a new executive. It's about shifting the mindset to an and play. And then if you look at it like that, not having just that ownership in in one one role, one office, if it is more of an experienced mindset, then how can you help all employees instill that mindset in the experience that they deliver to each other? Yeah. And it's even to your point, right? It's even employee to employee. It's the company treating the yeah. employees like they're their own internal customers. And then you collaborating with teammates across the aisle in a different group, in the same team, in a different team, in a remote office, in this collaborative way. So you as employees don't make a decision in your own vacuum that may have impact on other employees without considering them. So you nailed it. I mean, you nailed it, Matt, that ultimately it is really about thinking about what are the implications of decisions that we're making. You're never going to catch all of them. Right. Right. Impossible to assume you will. But you will catch the big ones if you if you just pause and do that. So it's everyone's individual responsibility. I think often I get asked, well, this sounds like, why would I read this book? Or why would I think about an experienced mindset? I'm an individual contributor. Yes, but the way you behave has implications to people you work with and their experience at work. What other employees do to you has implications to how you experience work, your happiness, your joy, your engagement. So everybody plays a part in this. And if they start to go, well, hold on a second, maybe I shouldn't do this because it might not work for this other team. So let me go ask this other team, if I did this, would you be okay with it? Now, all of a sudden that team goes, wow, you know, this is a great collaborative relationship, right? Like I enjoy this. I don't feel like this team is just dumping junk on me all day long and don't care about my day to day. Leaders will talk about how your energy is contagious. If you've got positive energy, it's contagious to your peers and to the other teams you work with. Same thing if you have negative energy. I think if you take this experience mindset and you instill it and showcase it and demonstrate it to your peers, your other functional teams, other functional areas that you work with, then they get that idea like, wow, okay, you know what? When I was working with Tiffany, she made this really easy for us. We need to do that as well. Listen, being somebody who was a high-performing individual quota-bearing sales rep, and then I got promoted and promoted and promoted through the course of my career. Every time I was promoted early in my career, no one ever sort of pulled me aside and said, okay, we're going to coach you on how to be a really good manager or leader. We're going to help you understand how to collaborate better or how to run a meeting or how to run a project or how to hire or how to give people constructive criticism or encourage or coach or mentor, like all those things that go along with leadership 
and management, if you will, the soft stuff like happiness right. and love your job. Like the old saying, if people don't leave companies, they leave managers, but we don't invest in that manager, that middle layer that is trapped in many ways between the executive team and the individual contributors, and they make everything happen. They're the translators from the top to the contributor. They're the translator from the contributors to the top, That's right? right? They have a lot of impact on happiness and satisfaction and engagement and willingness to do it. They're the tip of the spear for change. They have to communicate all these things. It, it's a lot. And oh, by the way, they have to do their day job. So uh, ultimately, it, this is about the culture of the organization and how willing are leaders in investing in their own talent that is managing the people, the individual contributors, because if you have a toxic manager, it, it just permeates the company. And then it just all of a sudden you wake up one day and you have a toxic culture and you're like, how did this happen? How did I get here that we can't retain talent, that the glass door is ratings are just horrible, that, huh. you know, our attrition's terrible, that we're just not able to do what we want to do. We can't even possibly attempt to reach our goals because we can't keep people. And if you can't keep people, they are unhappy. Well, and you mentioned Best Buy earlier, hypothetically, but you actually talk about them in the book. And they are an example of one of those companies that found themselves in a situation of dire straits, but they were able to turn things around through their equal focus on CX and EX. So uh, what did Best Buy learn in this turnaround? I would say that Hubert Jolet, who was the former chairman and CEO of, of Best Buy, which is the story in the book. It is a lesson that is so painfully obvious. Uh, Tom Peters wrote about it in his 1982 book, In Search of Excellence. Tom Peters called it management by wandering around. And he got that right. from Hewlett Packard, Mr. Hewlett, many years ago. Um, and it was, you know, get out and get on the manufacturing floor, like see people building your computers, watch them go through all the manufacturing process in the supply chain. And he made very different decisions based on those conversations he was having. And unfortunately, I don't know where that got lost. But when you find high-performing leaders or CEOs, you could say Southwest as an example. Yeah. Well, Herb Kelleher used to get on the airplanes and he would be a flight attendant. And he would hand out peanuts and he would do the bags. The CEO of Costco, six days a week, would be in some Costco in the United States every single day for a couple of hours. And that's what Uber did. He, in his first two weeks, he wore a badge that said CEO in training. And he went yes. and worked at a Best Buy in, I think it was in the Minneapolis area. And he just watched the employees and listened to customers and talked to customers. And lo and behold, it was showrooming back then, which was people would walk into Best right. Buy, find what they wanted, and then go find a better price on Amazon and order it. And sometimes be on the floor of Best Buy ordering it from Amazon to make sure they got the, the same TV or washer or dryer. Um, and, and back then, sort of the trick was manufacturers would change the SKUs ever so slightly so you couldn't go find the exact same one for uh. another day. But it was the same, sort of the same ones, right? And so he's like, okay, well, people are showrooming. So why shouldn't we just price match? There was price matching for other brick and mortar retailers, but there was no price match for online retailers with a brick and mortar retailer. And so he's like, we are, I am watching business walk out the door. He never would have gotten that had he not 
worked in the store for a couple of weeks. Now, maybe he would have if some executive came to him and said, hey, listen, we've been trying to do this. And the last executive and the last executive and the last executive wouldn't do it. We're hoping you'll do it. Maybe, maybe. But why not get a firsthand front row seat on that? And now you'll see like the Uber CEO will drive for a couple of weeks and made a whole bunch of changes for drivers and for passengers. Airbnb uh, CEO is renting a guest's house yeah. for Airbnb so he can go through the process. The new uh, CEO of Starbucks is a, a barista for a couple hours a day. I think he could do more. I think he needs to do more than just two hours uh, as a barista, but you know, at least it's something. But ultimately, it's like, why do we celebrate and reward that? That means what are other people not doing? And that's really that undercover boss show in the US where it just really highlights yeah. the fact that there's this huge disconnect between what executives think is happening in the business and what's happening in the business. So this is where leaders have to lead by example, lead from the heart, put people at the center. People are all inclusive of your customers and your employees and your vendor partners, the greater stakeholders you serve. And if you're public, your shareholders, the people at the center is really Uber's philosophy. And he wrote a book about it. I would say that that's the way that we have to shift. There's been a lot of talk around backing up on some of these things that are not a capitalist mentality, right? That it is all about revenue and profit and that's it. I think that having that kind of mentality got us into that great resignation. So that's why I hope we don't snap back to those bad behaviors. I hope we take some of these lessons learned um, and keep developing them. I think it's being able to take that, well, to take the mindset, to your point, of recognizing that there's downstream effects to our decisions. And it's not just on a short-term basis. It's not just on a quarterly basis and focusing on that, but recognizing that when we take this approach, when we do things uh, like being in touch with our customers and being in touch with our employees on such a regular basis, that it's the norm and not just headlines in the news, like, wow, like this really stands out, that there's really good sustainable business growth in the long term from doing that. We have to think about the greater good, just not the bottom line. It's not that you don't think about the bottom line. It, it Again, it's an and play. And sometimes it's more on one side or the other side, but it is. If you're going to develop a new product, do you need to develop one that's going to just trash the planet? Or could you develop a new product that's going to be better for the planet? If you're going to open a new call center, do you do it with the employee in mind? It can't just be ergonomics. It also has to be the systems and tools and training and, and all of those things. It can't just be pretty. Like pretty is great. Clean is great. Yeah. Great chairs and ergonomics is great. Stand up desk is great. Those things are all good, but we have to think about the people who are standing there or sitting there or in that beautiful space. And for those that now want to work from home in a flexible environment, what's their yeah. experience as an employee? Maybe totally different than the experience that an in-the-office employee has. And that's a dilemma for leaders. They're like, we want everyone to have the same experience. Well, maybe it's some of it is they don't want to have to work hard to figure out what's the experience we need to provide for these people who want to continue to work from home. And is it really a productivity issue? Because so many studies have proven that productivity is is as high, if not higher, in, in many cases. Is it a you don't trust them anymore? Well, geez, you hired me. You didn't trust me then. Or if you trusted yeah. me then, why don't you trust me now? Is it a, you know, is it a work product? Has my work slipped since I'm working from home? Or is it just, no, it's command and control. And if I can't see you, I can't manage you. And if I can't manage you, I can't measure you. If I can't measure you, I don't want you here. 
I think that we've shown, and I, I showed in the last story of the book, really, that those kinds of behaviors can backfire on you before you even realize it's happened. And let's talk about that because you did something in the book that I, that I don't think that I've seen anywhere else, really. So a lot of business books are very straightforward, using stats, research, and real life stories of real examples. Some business books are simply parables, but you took the approach of showing all the case studies and then at the very end, including a parable that kind of really brings it home in a storytelling style. So talk to me about that approach. It was at the tail end of binge watching as we were all locked at home for a couple of years. It was really my Dick Wolf law and order moment <laughs> where, yeah, where dun dun. Right. If I could, if I could have at the beginning of the chapter when I was reading the Audible book, at the beginning of that chapter, I actually wanted to go dun dun. And they wouldn't let me, but I really okay. wanted to. But I digress. Anyway, it was ripped from the headlines, a bunch of stories that had happened in the prior two years, good and bad from leaders around customer and employee experience. And it was a, you know, sort of mashup of a imaginary leader and an imaginary leader, and an imaginary leader. And those imaginary leaders, three of them, were really a makeup of leaders out there today. Um, and I obviously did not use their names, but I used what they did. I just protected the guilty, if you like. Yeah. And so it was The names sort have of, been changed yeah. to protect the innocent. Yes. It was more to protect the guilty. Um, but, you know, but I'd say that the point of that was to actually see in a story what I had just talked about in the prior nine or 10 chapters. There was an anchor character whom many of you who have read any business books or paid attention over the last 20 or 30 years might recognize. Then the other two leaders were really just a combination of leaders. Right. Um, and one was the hero, one was the protagonist. So it was a way for me to show the hero doing what was right and really having their own epiphany. Uh, and back to the dedication of the book, the hero in the story's first name is my mom's first name. Um, yeah. So that was a way for me to continue to pay homage to her since she was my hero in so many ways. And the last name of that character was also really my first mentor. It was my best friend's mom, who was the uh, early in YPO or Young Presidents Organization back in the early 1980s. Oh, wow. uh, she led the Hawaii chapter, was a woman. So I could see what I wanted to be, right? She was a businesswoman, built a multi-million dollar business, went to work every day, hired me at 15, 16, 17, 18. I worked for her for almost seven or eight years. And everything I learned about business, I pretty much learned from her. So the last name of that character is her last name. So it was a way for me to personalize a little bit uh, of that story for the hero in it. And what's been great is some people, there's a few things people really hooked onto in the book. And that one, they're like, wow, you should have put the story first. Maybe that story should have gone first. And we thought about it, um, yeah. but I, I was worried that it wasn't a hook enough and it might not make enough sense unless you'd gone through the prior chapters. Cause then you'd go, I know exactly what she's going to make happen next. Right. And boom, that's sort of predictably what, what happened. So that was a fun way for me to mix nonfiction and fiction in a business book. Well, I loved it. And I love the fact that it, especially with, uh, with the hero, the, the protagonist, 
it focused on what was going on in her head. What was she struggling with with some of those decisions? Like, well, should I do this? Should I take this approach? And then doing it, but then also really enjoyed the fact that it showed that it didn't happen overnight. It, it happened over a period of years and saying that when you do this, it's the right thing to do. And there's going to be great positive downstream effects, but it's going to take some time. For me to say customer experience is the sum of all the little things you do. Right. Someone might go, well, yeah, I get that. But that doesn't mean everyone understands what little things I'm talking about. And so one of the stories in that, one of the moments, I should say, in that story was that hero walking into this business and noticing how beautiful the grounds looked of the yeah. office, like something so simple. And then walking in and saying something to the receptionist and the receptionist proudly saying, well, all of our employees do it. They like do it on a Saturday. Everyone comes, we barbecue, they bring the kids and they all take care of the grounds. That one example of employees had pride in where they worked. That receptionist is part of that story that she didn't go, oh yeah, I don't know who does the yard or, or say nothing like, oh, <laughs> and just move on. No, it was an opportunity. So that is one of those, some of the little things. That's a way for me to say a little thing may be how clean is your entryway of your office? Yeah. How much does your receptionist enjoy their job? Like that is a, the sum of little things. And that was a flip switch point for her to go, huh? I want to know more about this company. I want to know more about a company where the employees care enough to come and clean the grounds and, and make sure that everything's beautiful on a Saturday with their family and have a barbecue. I want to know more about this company, right? So that's a great example. That's it. And even in the little things, there's intention that goes into the little things. Tiffany, I have learned so much from you. I've learned so much from the book, but where can people go to learn more? I'm really active on LinkedIn. Follow me on LinkedIn, Tiffany Bova. I'm active on Twitter. It's at Tiffany underscore Bova. And Tiffany is spelled with an I at the end, not a Y at the end. Although I own both, it will say. <laughs> Wrong spelling. I have a podcast called What's Next with Tiffany Bova. My first book is Growth IQ. I'm always looking for feedback on some of this content. If anything really resonated with you, I'd love to hear it. But also if you disagreed with something, especially around the happiness or love of work or purpose over profit or do well by doing good. I'm always open to that as well because that helps sort of shape what I say and, and the position that I take. The more input I can get to this topic, you know, the better I can be prepared for the questions I get with customers. Love that. Well, thank you. Tiffany, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Matt. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Tiffany Bova. You can learn more from her by following her on LinkedIn and Twitter, where she regularly shares her lessons around customer and employee experience and innovation. If you want to dive deeper into some of the lessons we discussed today, then go grab your copy of Tiffany's book, The Experience Mindset. And be sure and check out Tiffany's podcast, What's Next with Tiffany Bova, where she talks with some of the most innovative and creative people in business. The lessons are there to help you innovate and grow as you help your customers succeed. And if you're enjoying the Simple Brand Podcast, go ahead and hit the subscribe button. It's going to make it so much simpler for you to get future episodes like the next one featuring Phil Mershon. Phil and I discuss his lessons from his latest book, Unforgettable, The Art and Science of Creating Memorable Experiences. 
So go ahead and subscribe. You'll automatically get Phil's episode as soon as it's live. Until then, keep it simple. Simple.